Hi everyone and welcome to the first two episodes of the podcast series on gestational diabetes. My name is Jan and I'll be your host today. Today I'm also excited to have Anna-Jane Harding with us to take us through this series where we'll be discussing diagnosis and management of gestational diabetes. Anna-Jane is one of the senior credential diabetes educators at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, a tertiary hospital based in Sydney and has been nursing lead and coordinator in the diabetes and pregnancy service for the past 12 years. She has contributed to state and local policies and also been a co-author in a number of scientific papers in the field of diabetes and pregnancy. So hello, Anna-Jane, how are you today? Thanks, Jan. I'm well and pleased to be sharing my knowledge on gestational diabetes. I've been looking after women with gestational diabetes for over 15 years now. I really enjoy it. It used to be an area that I was involved in, so I can appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, So, Anna-Jane, as I said, today we'll be talking about gestational diabetes and covering its management during pregnancy as well as postpartum. And I'm wondering if you could please take us through some of the risk factors for gestational diabetes and who is most at risk. For example, is it certain demographics, ethnicities and so on, please? Gestational diabetes, or GDM, refers to abnormal glucose tolerance with onset or first recognition in pregnancy. It is a common complication of pregnancy and now affects about one in five to six pregnancies. GDM is associated with increased risk of significant maternal and neonatal morbidity. It occurs when the maternal pancreas is unable to compensate for increased insulin resistance in pregnancy. Insulin resistance occurs from placental secretion of counter-regulatory hormones. Generally, insulin resistance increases through pregnancy and is more pronounced in the third trimester between 24 to 28 weeks. This is why we screen at this time with a 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test with venous blood taken fasting as well as one and two hours after the glucose load. Some women are screened earlier if they are at high risk for diabetes. Some ethnicities have an increased risk. In Australia, these include South and East Asian, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, Maori, Pacific Islander, Middle Eastern and non-white Africans. Other risk factors for GDM include a history of previous GDM or pre-diabetes, more advanced maternal age, especially over 40 years, and immediate family history of diabetes, including GDM. Also, women who are overweight or obese noting that those with a BMI greater than 30 have almost a threefold increased risk of GDM and fourfold if their BMI is greater than 35. A high gestational weight gain in early pregnancy, as well as previous macrosoma, including a baby with a birth weight greater than 4.5 kilos or over the 90th centile, having polycystic ovary syndrome, or if the woman is taking medications such as corticosteroids or antipsychotics. And just a practice tip, Women who have had bariatric surgery should not undergo an OGTT due to risk of dumping syndrome. Instead, for these women, your centre should have a policy for screening with a fasting glucose, HbA1c and some fingerprint glucose checks. Thanks for that, Anna-Jane. So I guess given these risk factors, and I think you touched on this a little bit, when is an ideal time to screen for gestational diabetes? And does every pregnant woman have to undergo screening for gestational diabetes? And is it a once-off test or is it important to repeat throughout the pregnancy? ADIPS recommends that all women are screened between 24 to 28 weeks gestation. Women who who have high risk factors for GDM should be screened earlier in their pregnancy 
usually at present between 16 to 20 weeks. Okay, thank you for that. So has there been any recent updates to guidelines for diagnosing and managing gestational diabetes? And if so, what drives these updates? For example, is reducing complications to the fetus or mother or both? Previous diagnostic criteria for GDM views were derived from antenatal blood glucose levels associated with subsequent development of diabetes in the mother. However, the risk of adverse fetal outcomes associated with glucose levels during an OGTT in pregnancy remained unclear. The landmark study HARPO, Hyperglycemia and Adverse Pregnancy Outcome in 2008, aimed to determine what degree of hyperglycemia on OGTT is associated with adverse fetal outcomes. This was a prospective, randomised, multinational study with over 23,000 women. Its findings demonstrated that, you, that rising maternal glycemia between 24 to 28 weeks is associated with increased risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes, namely large for gestational age with risk for shoulder dystocia, need for a caesarean delivery, a higher cord C-peptide level, indicating increased insulin production by the baby as a response to maternal hyperglycemia plus neonatal hypoglycemia. As a result, in 2013, the IADPSG, or International Association of Diabetes Pregnancy Special Interest Group, proposed a change to the, to the diagnostic criteria for diagnosing GDM. And that change was to stop using the 50 gram glucose challenge due to a high false negative rate of 20% and only to use the 75 gram OGTT on all women and by consensus in Australia, we changed the fasting glucose from 5.5 to 5.1 or above, the one hour glucose of 10 or above, and we increased the two hour glucose cutoff from 8 to 8.5 or above. GDM is diagnosed if any one of more of these values are exceeded. I am sure that many DEs are aware that even before the change in diagnostic process and criteria, there had been a steady increase in the number of women diagnosed with GDM. In our service, for example, using the same testing process from 1991 to 2014, the rate of GDM increased from 3% of pregnancies to 15%. There is no evidence to screen for hyperglycemia early in earlier in pregnancy so I'm looking forward to the results of the toboggan or treatment of booking gestational diabetes study. However, these are as yet not published. Wow, it's scary. The numbers are increasing like that, isn't it? Mm. Thank you, Anne-Jane. Mm. Um, I'm just covering the overall management of gestational diabetes then. What evidence-based guidelines are recommended or useful in daily practice? We're all aware of addicts and their contributions, but are there any other guidelines, national or international, that can be used in this situation. ADIPS has management guidelines for GDM. These should be the basis for our management locally, and the general principles are consistent with those of ADA, Canadian Diabetes Association, and NICE in the UK. Fair enough, thank you for that. So on the subject of managing GDM then, can you please give us an overview of the medical management of gestational diabetes? And is it the same guiding principle as management of type 2 diabetes, for example? Well, most women with GDM will be at risk of later type 2 diabetes, and essentially the management is similar. However, it is important to appreciate that there are some women who do not look typical of having type 2 diabetes risk, for example, slim, Caucasian, with no risk factors. They may be at risk of type 1 diabetes. This risk is about 1 to 2% of our local GDM population. 
In addition, 1-2% to may have a genetic type of diabetes such as GCK Modi. You must therefore assess and manage your women with GDM individually. Once the diagnosis of GDM is confirmed, women should ideally have access to a multidisciplinary team, including an endocrinologist, obstetrician, midwife, dietitian and diabetes educator within one to two weeks of a GDM diagnosis. The role of diabetes education is vital to discuss the diagnosis, management and implications of GDM with women and their partners because as you can imagine, many women are very worried by the diagnosis and its implications for their baby. First line of therapy is nutrition and, where possible, daily exercise. Dietitians have an invaluable role in informing women of their nutritional requirements during pregnancy and providing strategies and interventions to assist in optimising glucose levels. Diet and lifestyle interventions can prevent or delay the need for medication, reduce excessive weight gain during pregnancy, and help ensure that the key messages continue to have a positive effect well after pregnancy. Women should be taught to recognise the role and effect of carbohydrate foods, the effects of distributing the carbohydrates consumed throughout the day, and the glycemic index and load of carbohydrates. We also ask the women to commence finger picking four times a day, fasting and one or two hours after the start of eating their main meals. If there is a trend of their glucose, glucose becoming above range at least two times in a week, in any one time frame, we review them. The question is whether dietary adjustments are needed or whether she may require the addition of medication to help keep glucose levels within range. One thing to watch for is to women who over-restrict their dietary carbohydrate intake in order to prevent going on to medication. You can suspect this if the woman is losing weight or has unusually low post-meal glucose levels. Asking the woman to keep a food diary may be helpful. Mention your concerns and she may tell you that she has concerns about starting medication, especially the possibility of commencing insulin. You must address these concerns. It is also important for the woman to be aware that carbohydrate is the main energy source for the baby. It is also important to recognise that excessive carbohydrate restriction in pregnancy can lead to a starvation type ketoacidosis. We should also encourage the women to aim for 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise, ideally daily, for example, walking, swimming or yoga. Regular exercise may decrease excessive weight gain, support mental health and improve glycemia. Exercise is beneficial because the exercising muscle can take up extra glucose without insulin, so exercise after meals can help lower postprandial glucose levels. Thus, we often advise women to move for about 10 to 15 minutes after a meal, particularly if post-meal glucose levels are trending above range. Even housework, housework or walking around the block can help. On the other hand, they should be advised against commencing excessive exercise. Thanks for that, Anna Jane. So how frequently do women with GDM need to monitor their blood glucose levels? And I think you've touched on that a little bit. But do they have prescribed targets? And what can they do if they cannot meet these targets? So women are initially asked to monitor their glucose four times per day, fasting and postprandially either one or two hours after the start of eating a main meal. Targets are dependent on the local centre's policy. The fasting glucose level should generally be less than 5 to 5.2, one hour after start of eating less than 7.5 to 7.8, or two hours after start of eating less than 6.7 to 7. It is important to check their technique, especially in the first couple of weeks. Are they washing their hands before checking their glucose? And if they are using a hand sanitizer or hand cream, this can affect the glucose level. 
Fasting for more than 10 to 12 hours overnight can lead to elevated fasting glucose levels due to gluconeogenesis. Thus, many women do better having supper to help reduce this and checking their glucose soon after waking, as there can, can be increased insulin resistance early in the morning with extra circulating hormones to wake the body up. Checking that they are not having anything to eat or drink besides water overnight is important too. With regard to post-meal glucose levels, are they eating as recommended? Have they seen a dietitian? Again, using a food diary can help with recall of meals and can also help them understand the effect of different carbohydrates on their glucose. If a woman is managing GDM with diet and exercise and her glucose levels are consistently within the target range, she may be able to reduce the number of checks. However, if the glucose levels start to rise at a certain time, then she should start checking consistently at that time again. Okay, thank you for that. Now, we're all familiar with diabetes distress and burnout, but does this also apply in GDM? And if so, how can we minimise the emotional impacts of GDM on pregnant women to ensure a safe pregnancy? And I guess more equally as importantly, how can CDEs play a part and when is a referral to a psychologist perhaps needed? Certainly, Jan. I did a study which I presented at ADA several years ago, looking at the words women use to express their feelings about the diagnosis of GDM. And what this showed was that during pregnancy, the women were anxious and have a great sense of guilt when told that they have GDM. But after they had the baby, their feelings were much more positive as they were pleased with the intensive care they received from our team and felt the focus on healthy living put them in a good place for the future. It is important at the first meeting in a group or individually that the diabetes educator starts to build rapport with the woman and her partner. Talk to them and give them the opportunity to voice any concerns. I find that you may spend longer at some sessions than others talking about things going on in their lives. We should not just look at numbers. You can help them in their journey. After all, pregnancy is a special time in a woman's life. If possible, consistency of care goes a long way towards helping to relieve anxiety a woman may have through to the birth of their baby and future health. We all have or are working towards electronic medical records, so it is worthwhile reading through a woman's notes to see if there may be any known concerns, for example, depression or anxiety. As the Edinburgh Depression Scale screens for symptoms of emotional distress during pregnancy and the postnatal period, it can highlight any concerns. I can't underestimate the importance of the multidisciplinary tech approach. Talking with your colleagues if you have or they have any concerns for a woman on their pregnancy journey. This can help to identify and address any emotional or mental health issues that may require more support for the women. Thank you so much for that. So are there any tips you'd like to share with our listeners regarding monitoring glucose and offering that emotional support to women with GDM? You've touched on it a little bit, but just if you could expand on that, that would be great. Certainly. We should all appreciate the effort and time taken to manage a pregnancy with GDM. Do include the partner's woman's partner in consults and encourage their support for their partner. Encourage the women to make changes to diet and lifestyle, recognising that it is for the health of their baby, but also for them too. As diabetes educators, we are there to support women through their pregnancy and we can help them make positive changes. Many tell me that they feel better and have more energy since their GDM diagnosis, as they are taking more care with their health. What can be better than that? Absolutely. 
And Anna Jane, thank you once again. It's been really great to talk to you today. And we'll catch up again for the second episode of this series. Thank you to those of you taking the time to listen to this podcast. And to obtain CPD credit for this podcast, please go to the ADEA Learning Management System at learning.adea.com.au and complete a feedback evaluation. So until next time, goodbye.